the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening to the show, you know, welcome aboard. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. We do not want to give money to the government. We want to avoid going through court, avoiding probate. In today's world, in our, I don't know if it's a post-COVID world or trans-COVID world or whatever, but we don't want to go through probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, our main goal is to try to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. And, and I guess you would say the second part of the show, we're going to um, talk about, I, I would say it's history. You know, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, Breezy Point. The speaker is going to be Marty Ingram, who is uh, chief of the fire department out there at Breezy Point the night of Sandy. His brother's been on the show a couple of times talking about Irish history. Judge Ingram he used to be, you know, surrogate in Kings County. But we're, we're going to be talking to Marty about his experiences at Breezy Point, the Night of Sandy, which are really, truly remarkable. In the meanwhile, I'm accompanied by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Hey, everybody. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And Crystal boys in the background, too shy to ask a question. Um, <laughs> so I'll ask it. I'm All right. Shy. So, Beth, what's our question of the week? This is from Jim. What should I do with my original legal documents, especially my will? And to be honest with you, this is one of the hardest questions to answer because there's no one right answer. I mean, all right, let's say if, if you lose your original will, it's a problem. And, uh, you know, if you lose your original will, New York state law presumes that the will has been revoked by you. So somehow somebody's going to have to try to prove that you did not revoke the will, which, depending on the circumstances, could be very difficult. 
next to impossible, or in some cases, if all if it's to the children and all the children consent, then it may not be that hard. But it, it is a problem if you lose the original will. At the very least, you're going to have a, a, a long, lengthy delay. So where do you put the will? In a safe place. That's the answer. But the question, what is a safe place? If you put it in a safe deposit box, that ordinarily is a safe place. The only problem is when you pass away, even if the box is joint with someone else, the bank is going to freeze the box and you're going to need a court order to get inside that box. And that can be a hassle and it's one more la you know, layer of legal work to go through. I would prefer that in some cases than losing the original will. What are your other alternatives? Well, another alternative is you keep it in your house in a safe place. Don't keep it in a, in a safe necessarily. Or if you keep it in one of those tin fireproof boxes, that's fine. Just don't put any money or jewelry or whatever in that box because God forbid you pass away and you know the, the, the house or the apartment is vacant. It's an attempting target for somebody to grab in a hurry and, and disappear. Um, and that, that does happen. You can file it with the surrogate's court where you live, and they charge a relatively nominal fee for it, less than $50. But if you do that and you move and nobody realizes that, let's say, you file your will in Kings County, Brooklyn, and then later on you move to Florida, nobody may remember that you filed your will in Kings County, surrogate's court in, in Brooklyn. And so that can be a problem. So I know that's what I'm saying. It's one of the hardest answers to, to give. Now, in, in some cases, let's say maybe your executor holds the will, assuming your executor is going to be a younger person and they can hold the will and maybe they hold it in a safe place. And, and, you know, let's say your executor is a close family member or whatever, then you know, maybe they hold the will in their safe deposit box, and if they're a younger member, we're going to be playing the odds that they don't pass away before you. And even if they do, I mean, it's a little bit of a hassle, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, the idea is you don't want to lose an original will. Now, other documents like ordinarily if we sign a trust agreement, if we sign powers of attorney or health care proxies, ordinarily we sign duplicate original powers of attorney or health care proxies or copies of a trust agreement. You might say, well, why don't you sign two original wills? Wouldn't that be easier? That way we can't lose it. No, because, again, under New York state law, it's presumed that if you sign two original wills, that if you can't produce both of those wills, then you've revoked the will. So, in other words, if you sign three wills, if all three wills don't show up after you're gone, it's presumed you revoked that will and you got a, a court hearing. So I, I know that sounds arcane, archaic. But that's what the law is because basically the will, the law and wills has been pretty much the same with very, very minor exceptions for more than 150 years. We're going back into the, you know, the 1800s, you know, for the last changes on, on the law and wills. And, and even then, you know, in different states, we have some different rules. Some states, you can do a holographic will if you do a will entirely in your own handwriting. It's accepted. Some states, you can't. Some states will, if it's in your own handwriting, doesn't have to be witnessed, like I said, a holographic will. Some states, we had this discussion a few years back on the searchers, when Ethan Edwards signs his will and it's totally in his own handwriting. Is it a legal document? Well, under Texas law, it is. In New York, it wouldn't be. So, uh, as, as one of the attorneys here is fond to say on many of these shows, it's not a time to do it yourself. <laughs> you know, you want to you do it right. Now, 
we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be talking to Marty Ingram at the end of the break. We'll, you know, touch base again. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer, and let's listen to Marty Ingram. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now, we have Marty Ingram, and he's from Breezy Point, New York. And Marty, I think a good start of this is what is Breezy Point? Breezy Point is a unique community that sits on the Atlantic Ocean at the western tip of uh, the Rockaway Peninsula. It's a horizontal cooperative, and uh, the people uh, are all, it's a community of families. It's a generational community, and it's uh, 
A lot of people are very friendly to each other. But it's surrounded by water uh, with the Jamaica Bay on the north and the Atlantic Ocean on the south. Now, we're going to go back a few years, Hurricane Sandy. And you wrote a memoir of those days. But what happened and where were you? Well, I was in Breezy Point, and I held the position of the uh, fire chief, the volunteer fire department at, at Point Breeze. It's the Breezy Point Fire Department. We were one of uh, three volunteer uh, fire companies in, uh, in on the Rockway Peninsula, a total of nine in the city that worked inter- interacted with the FDNY. But you're actually within the city of New York. Absolutely. And it's, but it's volu- volunteer. It, yeah, and, and uh, this has been going on for a long time. Our, our fire department is over 100 years old. Uh, we have a charter from the city, and uh, we recognize, obviously, the city as the incident commander. When they arrive on scene, they take over the, the responsibilities. A lot of time, they let us keep doing what we've been doing. We have uh, equipment that um, is four-wheel drive trucks that are four-wheel drive trucks, and they can operate in the sand, and we can get to places where the city can't. And uh, But we have a great working relationship together. And um, many of our young people who train with us uh, go ahead and take the, the test for the city and eventually get hired uh, by the city. That's one of their goals. All right, so... When, when, when did Sandy happen? You know, it's starting to get in the distant past now almost. Well, coming up to the 10th anniversary, and it was October 29th, uh, 2012. And where were you that day? Uh, we were in Breezy Point, uh, again, being the fire chief. Uh, we, uh, we went through the drill two years before with Hurricane Irene. We were pre- preparing the equipment, making sure batteries were charged, trucks were fueled, water was uh, available. We were also turning the firehouse into a, uh, a shelter-in-place uh, building. We had gone out and got food. We got uh, cots and, and beds. And our plan was to stay the duration and be available in case anything happened that night. Now, two years before, we did the same with Hurricane Irene. Irene took a, uh, a turn before it came in, and uh, despite a lot of the uh, hype that the hurricane got from the news media, uh, it was a glancing blow. We had uh, very little problems with that. And uh, ironically, it set up a uh, condition where people were now uh, disbelieving of the media hype. And uh, a lot of people ignored uh, uh, the warnings about Hurricane Sandy. Okay, so you had the warnings about Hurricane Sandy. How many people were in Breezy Point, you, you think, the day of the storm? Well, uh, it's just a guesstimate we don't have an accurate number of people who remained uh, for the storm but the best way that we gauged it was by the number of cars that remained if you're going to evacuate you would have taken your car we saw uh, gosh it was 1500 to 2000 cars and so we thought that uh, well we later found out that a good number of people um, did stay and regretted the decision and uh um, would never do that again. Yeah. Now, wasn't it general generally perceived that you should get off the oh, peninsula? A- absolutely. The uh, the mayor was putting out evacuation orders. We had uh, sirens down in Breezy Point that uh, I think it was nine blasts, and uh, the uh, it was warning everybody to leave, and it was going on for almost the entire day, and uh, it almost sounded like something out of the Planet of the Apes, the movie, but. Um, 
apparently a lot of people ignored it, and like I said, I think they regret it. Yeah. Well, it's probably because, again, the high surprise storms like Arena, where you know everybody says the world's going to end, the world's going to end, and then it doesn't. Right. That that was exactly the setup the way it was. And uh, it wasn't intentional. I, I think the news media saw, you know, we have terrific satellites. We could see the movement of these storms. They can make predictions, but but meteorology is, is still an imprecise science, and it's and it's uh, it it's constantly improving. Thank God. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about your background, because we're not just putting you in the middle of Breezy Point, in the middle of Sandy. Yeah, my background. Uh, I grew up uh, in Breezy Point uh, after college. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on. I uh, joined the Air Force. And I volunteered to become a, uh, a rescue helicopter operator for the Air Force. And uh, it required all the uh, commissioning, training, the survival, and the, the technical aviation training. And um, I stayed with it. I was on active duty for a number of years. And then I transferred over to a uh, Air National Guard outfit. And I continued to fly with them out on Long Island. And um, I did that for, I was in the cockpit for 25 years. And uh, I transferred to another part of the Air Force. Uh, it was called the Emergency uh, Disaster Emergency Relief Organization. Uh, and we uh, we were disaster response officers. And ironically, that gave me also a lot of background and experience for um, working storms. Uh, before I left to go into the Air Force, I was a member of the um, Point Breeze Volunteer Fire Department. And when I came back to my community in 2004, I lived on Long Island for a long time. But I moved back to Breezy in 2004, and I um, rejoined the fire department. And ironically, I was the chief of the fire department at the time of Hurricane Sandy. All right, so let's get to the, the beginning of the storm. What was happening at the beginning of the storm? Well, we were doing preparations. We, uh, we made the decision to stay and shelter in place, uh, having the charter. From the city of New York, as a volunteer fire department, we felt that uh, it was appropriate. Uh, although the mayor was ordering evacuations, we ignored the, evacu uh, the order for us because uh, we felt that we needed to be there in case anything happened. We, we never imagined what did happen, but fortunately we were there, uh, just like the two other volunteer fire departments, uh, Rockway Point Volunteer Fire Department and Roxbury. They also chose to, stay, uh, to shelter in place and be available, and they did a great job. Well, let me ask you something, because some people have no idea what the layout is. If, if somebody had a heart attack or something like that, how would you get help and where would you go? Well, in a medical situation, uh, we'd call the security. They'd uh, send an, uh, a siren, an alarm out. Volunteers would uh, return to the firehouse. And in case of a medical situation, Roxbury Fire Department and Rockway Point both have ambulances. The Point Breeze, uh, Breezy Point Fire Department does not. So they would uh, launch an ambulance. Uh, the city would be notified as well. And if it was a medical or a fire call, they'd send their equipment and we would control the situation until they got there. And a lot of times in the medical situations, uh, our ambulance would carry the people to the hospital. Again, our vehicles are equipped to, to operate in the sand. There's a lot of sand in Breezy Point. Yes. And how far is it to the nearest hospital? That could be uh, that we used to have a big hospital out in Rockaway. Uh, the nearest hospitals would really are Brooklyn, uh, whether it be Coney Island Hospital or Kings Highway Hospital. Uh, in Far Rockaway, we have St. John's Hospital. 
All right. So again, the storm's starting to brew. What's happening? Where are you? Uh, we're at the firehouse. We just uh, we purchased a lot of food. We're getting everything set up. Uh, somebody came in. This is at six thirty. We got reports all day that the uh, the ocean was really angry and the waves were immense uh, at low tide that was supposed to be in the afternoon we actually witnessed high tide and the tides continue to come in so we were getting reports uh, finally around 6:30 what happened was uh, uh, I guess it was had to be the uh, tidal surge from Hurricane Sandy and, and Hurricane Sandy was uh, about a thousand miles long and um, it was so bad we had to evacuate the firehouse and from there, we went to the next building over, which is the uh, Breezy Point Clubhouse, which was elevated. And during Hurricane Donna in 1960, this is where a lot of people congregated because it was the highest spot in Breezy Point. So we evacuated. We took what tools and equipment we could uh, we could carry with us, uh, radios, uh, small tools, and um, we uh, took up shelter in the clubhouse. And what happened there was a lot of people... Uh, also took shelter and they came in. And so we were becoming a, a public shelter in the middle of a storm and we were still on standby to, uh, in hopes of responding to if a fire breakdown broke out. All right. So you're becoming a shelter, but from where, let's say there was another emergency. How would you get to the, I'm going to call it the mainland or Brooklyn? Uh, well, in advance, the uh, the Bridge and Tunnel Authority announced that the Marine Parkway Bridge was going to be closed, and also the the other bridge in Rockaway, the Veterans uh, Bridge at Cross Bay. So those were closed, and we knew it was going to be closed for the duration. We knew that we were going to be isolated there, and then we we were saddened to find out that, uh, and, and it was a, a business decision that was very difficult for them to make, but the FDNY made the decision that it would be better for their people and their equipment to evacuate the Rockaway Peninsula. And when we heard that, we knew we were going to be alone. That was pretty critical. So not only did we know the bridge was going to be closed, also the organization that we worked so closely with uh, in the past and felt really comfortable that they were there with us, uh, now we found out they were not going to be with us. All right, so you're now moving to the, the shelter, so to speak. The What is it, community club? or uh, it, It's the Breezy Point Clubhouse. They have an Breezy association Point clubhouse. clubhouse. Okay. So we went in there, we set up shop. We uh, had our radios. People had their cell phones still working. We were getting uh, intel from all directions. Uh, we had people coming into us. And now surrounding us, uh, Point Breeze Avenue became a raging river. Now, they, they said that the... Um, uh, the tidal surge was actually nine f feet uh, high of the water. Uh, but also, uh, one of the ocean buoys, uh, about 15 miles southeast of Breezy Point, registered early in the evening a 35-foot um, a wave. And uh, w it, what happened was all this water from the storm came in advance, saturated, uh, turned the neighborhood into... Atlantis. I mean, we were beneath the sea. The ocean met the uh, the bay. Uh, the water was the water table. Not only was the ocean meeting the bay, but the water table was rising vertically. In the clubhouse, we could see the water coming up out of the floor, and uh, the water outside the clubhouse at one point was uh, five feet. We could see it through a glass partition, which we hope would stay intact. 
And uh, inside, we had three feet of water. And there were a number of people in the building who, even though we had high ceilings in the building, they were afraid that we were going to drown in the building. And that created the first dilemma that we had, which was, should we evacuate in the middle of the storm, and is there a safer place to go? How would you evacuate? Where would you evacuate to? Well, one of our uh, fire uh, members of the fire department uh, uh, had a house right across the, the way from it. It was a two-story house. And at one point, we had about 60, uh, we figured 60 people. It was uh, 45 um, survivors and the rest were firemen. And we were going to abandon the clubhouse, cross this raging river, and climb up into the house and go on to the second floor. And we searched the building for things that would help us. We found an old set of Christmas tree lights that um, was the best thing we can come up with, and I didn't like that. And just as we were about ready to um, uh, cross the river, um, one of the young firemen came up and said, what if that building has a problem? What if the storm has put that building off of its foundation? Now you're going to have 60 people on the second floor. It's very easy. That building's going to collapse. And... Once I heard that, I realized it made a heck of a lot of sense, and we, we canceled the, uh, the plan. And we said, we're going to shelter in place here. Now, ironically, the following day, we found out that building was off the foundation. And had we gone up to it, it, it would have been a disaster, with inside of a disaster. So we made the right call on that. I, I, you know, there were other things in there. It's in the book. I don't want to get too much detail. There were cars that were getting bounced around by the wind and by the salt water, and they were signaling alarms. And initially we thought that um, people were drowning in the cars, and uh, we almost assigned people to go out in the storm. And over the ball field near the clubhouse, the water was 20 feet. I mean, it was it was just unbelievable where this water was coming from. And uh, we would have lost firemen, and they would have been scattered, and I needed to keep the fire department together. And we made a tough decision that um, they may be safer in the cars than us trying to rescue them. And it turned out nobody was in the cars. Uh, we found that out the next day. And it was all because of the alarm systems that the cars have started flashing the lights and honking the horns, and nobody was in the cars. So we were going to try to uh, rescue people that weren't uh, actually there. But that that's, you know, what goes on in the middle of these storms, you know, and the tough decisions you have to make. So what time of day are we talking about now? Uh Around 6.30 in the evening in October, it's getting dark out. It's uh, th- uh, At one point, we had a total power failure, and uh, fortunately, we had our flashlights, and we had some of our handheld radios, and, and again, cell phones that were working. Um, I don't know exactly the time. I think around 7.30, 8 o'clock, uh, a, uh, we started to get word that there was a fire. And that happened at the south end of Ocean Avenue. And what, uh, what apparently happened was that uh, uh, salt water contacted electricity, created an arcing, and then it started a, big, uh, started a fire. And, and that fire was fanned by the winds. And eventually it turned into what now is known as the, the biggest residential fire in the history of Queens, New York. And one of the biggest in the history of residential fires in the history of New York City, the previous one, uh, the biggest, was, I think, right around the Civil War. And uh, so this fire, sadly, we lost 135 homes. But the miracle 
one of the miracles of the entire night was uh, that nobody, nobody died, which is and you think there were maybe about 4,000 people in Breezy Point? I know you're making estimates by cars, but... I, I think there is... Conservatively, we're saying 2,000. 2,000, okay. You know? and, uh, um, and I don't even know if that's accurate. It's, it's a guesstimate, you know. So, uh, you know, I mentioned a, a miracle. There, there was... And this story needs to be told, and this is why I'm writing the story. I, I After the storm, you know, I have six grandkids, and... I'd be talking to them and telling bedtime stories and stuff, and um, and I tell them about the experiences, you know. And as they grew older, they would say, "Papa, you got to write a book," and um, and I did. And, and as long as they like it, I feel that's going to be my measurement of success. But during yeah, the storm, too many times when I talk to grandparents today, or even people today, and you know, my grandfather told me this story and whatever, and nobody knows it anymore. You know, it's it's a, it's a good thought to put it down in writing. Well, not only that, uh, you know, in Rockaway, we talk about the hurricane of 38. We talk about Hurricane Donna. Uh, we don't have any real records of books to read about Hurricane Donna or the big hurricane 38. Now, a good friend of mine, Sebastian Denise, uh, he wrote a book within six months of the storm. Uh, he he called, It's called the, uh, the Battle for Breezy Point. And he was one of uh, our firemen. He was over my shoulder. This guy wrote a terrific book. I, I helped him in writing it. Um, but I felt that the story for the year after needed to be told. And, and uh, some of the, the story needed to be told from one of the decision makers that was on scene. Uh, Sebastian did help me in writing this. Uh, I feel that, like Gettysburg, um, you know, one book doesn't suffice on writing about a big event like this. And, and it needs to be written from a, a diff different perspectives. So during during our time in the clubhouse um, with the survivors, and, and my concern was, you know, it, it's lives before property, and these people were terrified, and I needed to make sure they stayed calm, and I needed, I felt I needed to inform them. And in, in informing them, I called them together in a huddle, and I, I would update them as I saw the situation evolving. And uh, uh, like I said, one time that we had over three feet of water, we had to have them up on a stage, and um, they were huddling. And I came in, and I, as I updated them, at the very end, I used to be a, a swim coach for Nazareth High School, and, and before the swim meet, we would say a prayer, you know, in hopes that the, the Almighty would, would help us to win the, the swim meet, you know. So I'm looking at these people, and I said, Gee, I, I hope you don't mind this. Uh, you might think it's absurd, but I think it's appropriate. Please join me in saying the Our Father. You know, so we we did the Our Father, and and everybody went back. They looked at me like, you know, this is the fire chief saying prayers. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they go back, and then we have, uh, and right after that, uh, you know, magically. Two uh, Zodiac rescue boats come up from the Rockaway Point Fire Department, and they come in, and now we have a new dimension. We have a water apparatus inside of this hurricane when the whole neighborhood is underwater. And I didn't realize it at the time, but, but that was more than a coincidence. you know. So then the next uh, prayer group we have, um, uh, at the end, uh, now they're ready for it. You know, They want to say the prayer. We do another Our Father. And when we go back, and I mentioned already that the tide came in at low tide, and it kept coming. And, and uh, 
at nine o'clock or nine ten, it was supposed to be uh, the tide was changing, and uh, now we had the fire in in full force. We could see the fire, and we couldn't get to it because we had so much water surrounding us, and we didn't know if the trucks would start, but we couldn't uh, we couldn't go in in such uh, deep water. So at the end, we said another prayer. Then it was a second, and uh, magically, the you know, I'm using the, the stop sign outside and the mortar lines inside the clubhouse, and I just see fractional change, and I'm going, holy cow, the tide's going out. So we took that really as another, you know, uh, positive outcome, a miracle. A- and uh, so the third one comes along, and being a pilot, I'm a, you know, a, a buff on weather, and what happens is uh, I see the, the wind change, and I know the wind change means that, now we're on the back end of the storm, and I interpret that to be a good thing. It turns out it was really bad, but I called the people together to tell him that um, that we had a wind shift. It's now coming out, out of the, the southeast instead of the you know the northeast, and um, and we're on the back end of it, and this thing is going to wrap up pretty soon. But wh- uh, so I we started to do another prayer. And somebody called me because one of my firemen wanted to go off and rescue somebody he knew. The people were afraid they were going to, the people that didn't leave their homes were afraid they were going to drown in their attics. And he wanted to go get them on his own. And I couldn't do that. I only had 15 guys. So they called me off the prayer. I got a good friend of mine, Steve Glavy, uh, who came in. And as I'm walking away, I'm having a really bad night. I knew the two-hour fathers worked well. And he starts the Hail Mary. And, and, uh, and I, I just like, oh, I got to talk to him about that. You know? <laughs> so I go over, I, I stop the guy from going on a suicide mission. And I waited two months to talk to Steve and say, Steve, why did you do the Hail Mary? You know, and, and later on, that, I'll tell you, that was the real big miracle. And Steve said, I went to Catholic, high school, Catholic grammar school in Brooklyn. And the, the nun had me uh, stand up in front of the class to say the Our Father. And he said, I botched it so bad, she yelled at me. You know, Steve's like 65. And, and he said, I thought I'd do better with the Hail Mary. But the Hail Mary, <laughs> <laughs> the Hail Mary, actually, that we had the biggest miracle. Because what had happened was the wind shifted, and now we're downstream to this gigantic smoke plume from the the houses that are all on fire and what happens is we're now eating smoke inside the fire inside the clubhouse and we lock up the windows we get red cloths we try to you know we try to control our breathing and and we can't and the former chief comes up to me he says now you have to evacuate and i didn't want to evacuate because coming from a military environment i knew army air force anybody you move a bunch of troops on a good day somebody's going to get hurt on a bad day like that somebody was going to die but we had no other option and uh so i had to i saw all the water in the clubhouse and i figured that the firehouse the trucks were totally submerged and uh i got my uh chauffeurs the drivers for the trucks and i said see if you can make yourself into the the firehouse and see if those trucks will start how far is the firehouse uh 10 yards but the winds howling, the water's yards, raging, yeah. there's waves yeah. in between the clubhouse and the firehouse. So I'm figuring it's not going to happen. 
and I'm already starting to try to come up with another plan. And as I'm talking to one of the firemen, I hear two engines roar to life. That was a miracle. Now, th there, was, there was a church group in Jamaica that did a painting, and they called them the Miracle Trucks of Breezy Point. And uh, it, that truly is the, the miracle. And not only that, the next day we went to the, the what's now called the burn zone. And the only thing standing inside the burn zone, it looks like a clamshell, but it, it's a statue of the Blessed Mother. And to me, that was her way of saying she's leaving her calling card to let us know she was there. And that, that's truly a miracle. That statue is now in front of St. Edmund's Church. And uh, I can't go by it without saying a prayer of thanks. And St. Edmund's is, I know of Thomas More Church there. St. Edmund's is down by Tioga Walk. Okay. It's a brown church on the road. That's a smaller church, yeah. It's a smaller church, um, but uh, it's there with their arms wide out. I call it clamshell, Mary. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's in a clamshell. Now, I mean, obviously we can tell by your emotions, but you really do feel divine providence had something to do with that night. Absolutely. I, I look around, and I, you know, at that time I was on the community board, 14, for Rockaway. I was on the board of directors for the Breezy Co-op, and I got to witness. Um, my book goes a year after it, uh, the storm and, and really covers the Reconstruction era. And But what I was amazed at, was that um, now I walked in as a fire chief at 60 years old. Uh, I, I came in with a lot of unique experience that really helped in that position. And, and uh, uh, we're elected as fire chiefs. Um, not unlike the city, there's a test and there's competition and there's a school and you get appointed to the position. Uh, in here we get elected, but uh, it's based, you're elected on the trust of, of the members of the department because they think you can do the job. But as I, and I was fortunate to be in there, and I was honored to serve, but throughout the entire Rockaways, and I could see this from the community board, there were leaders uh, on the board, there were people in charge of uh, HOAs and different civic groups that really were prepared and did a great job in, in responding to the year-long effort to rebuild the Rockaway Peninsula. And uh, I don't think that's a coincidence either. You know, a lot of these people with experience, and I could mention names, but I'm going to miss some names. Yeah, well, let me just go back in time. The engine started. What happened? Well, uh, at that time, we knew people were, you know, choking, the eyes, the snot in their face, and uh, we had to get out. So we set up a, uh, a human uh, safety net, and we had the survivors walk out. And, and they were older people, younger people, cats, dogs. It was like Noah's Ark, and um, we helped them to get into the firehouse. They had to walk through all this water and debris, and we made, um, with between the two trucks, we made two trips uh, up to St. Thomas More, which was on the other side of the smoke plume, and uh, that church became an impromptu uh, public shelter as well, and it was standing water inside the church. People were laying out and sitting on the church pews, but it, it was a central place for where eventually the um, uh, NYPD came in with trucks and uh, took the injured or took the uh, people that were medically ill to um, to other locations. So uh, we did the evacuation. I chose to go on the last truck out 
you know, I was Air Force, but that I knew the Navy tradition. <laughs> and as we're going out, um, uh, we get a call that to the northwest part of the property, near what's called the lighthouse, that there's an elderly citizen there that uh, uh, had a serious medical condition and uh, needed needed to be picked up. And so we we took our truck over there. And uh, in the process of rescuing that person, we had survivors on our truck, too. Uh, we saw one of the homes on the north side of the property, right on the bay side, uh, was on fire. And, and the fire already had jumped. And uh, and this threatened the whole community on the uh, north northwest side of uh, the point. And uh, so we stretched hose. We... Um, we got the fire. It was the front, uh, the south side of the house. It was totally engulfed. We knocked that fire down, did a search, uh, and um, uh, this was even before we got to the big fire. And uh, had we not discovered that, uh, again, most of the people are gone. The fire alarm systems are, are disabled. Nobody's there to report it. It's all word of mouth. We stumbled onto this thing, and had we not gotten it, we would have had a, con a conflagration that would have taken out the uh, the western tip of uh, the community. So we did that. We knew we had to go to the big fire. We took the, the survivors up to the uh, St. Thomas, and we came around to the northwest northeast corner of the fire by the uh, uh, it was Eighth Avenue and Two Hundred Eight Street, I guess it was. And we uh, we we saw Roxbury was the first uh, volunteer fire department to. Uh, actually get fire, uh, get water on the big fire. And uh, Rockway Point's trucks, unfortunately, uh, they, they didn't start because um, the water got to them. They couldn't uh, start. They were disabled. So now in Breezy Point, we had one truck from Roxbury and two trucks from Breezy, uh, from Point Breeze uh, Fire Department. And um, we looked at it. We could see over the fire. It was progressing westbound. Um, we felt we had to figure out how to get behind it. And because uh, we didn't want to chase it, uh, if you chase it, more homes would have burnt. So we uh, we decided on a route, and uh, this, one of the fellows, the chauffeur of the truck I was on, Tim Duffy, said, "Let's go this way." And uh, we we went down to Two Nineteenth Street. We had to drive through the smoke plume, and that was so dangerous you couldn't see. Uh, Tim would actually look through the. We had. Uh, lights that fire trucks typically have to light up a job. I think they're called job lights. And, and um, normally you point them at the fire, but these were pointed down. So Tim was looking in the rearview mirror in order to drive forward. And I was there and visibility was almost nil, but we, occasionally I, I'd see this large concrete flower pot that had a weigh 50, 100 pounds. And I don't know how it got there, but it was, you know, the strength of the water flow. And uh, we had to clear that in order to get down to 219th Street. And when we got down there, that was the main entrance uh, for the area. A lot of people's decks, it was a wide street. The decks were ripped off. And and what happened was a pile of wood and debris and jetsam and flotsam were, were right there. We couldn't go through it. And so we, we decided to go to 220th Street, and magically we were, we were able to get through there. We went to Breezy Point Boulevard. We got on the promenade, and we got to the... Uh, the southwest corner of the fire, and there we hooked up to hydrants and uh, started to fight the fire. When did the ordeal end? Um, the, the ordeal of the storm, because different ordeals. Yes. <laughs> the, the storm ended for us at 5 a.m. Uh, we, we had major problems. We, we were alone. 
you know, and we were praying that the FTNY would come. And finally, around 1 o'clock, I saw them. Uh, they were on the other side of the fire. But at one point, we were in a grotto of fire. I'll never forget this. Uh, we had, again, the wind was out of the southeast. We had fire in front of us. We were between Gotham and Hudson Walk. And we had fire in front of us, above us, left and right. And, and it was like a cave of fire. And we could talk. And, and what had actually happened to me right before that, I fell into a, uh, a sinkhole. And I was soaked. And luckily, some of my guys were close by. I was holding on to a pressurized hose. And, but all my clothing was just soaked. And, and I was, and the water was cold. And, but inside this cave of fire, it was like being in an oven. And, and it was actually saving me. <laughs> so we, um, we got through that. We had water pressure problems. We, uh, we knocked down because we saw the fire jumping. The most critical thing I think we did was there were skeletons of the home, homes that were there, and embers were being blown off of the wood, wooden uh, infrastructure of it. And that was being carried airborne, you know, onto the other side. And we did our best to knock down all those. And as far as we know, we know for a fact now that the fire didn't jump again. So uh, we did that throughout the night. At 5 o'clock, we uh, called it off. We are totally exhausted. We were probably dehydrated. I was running uh, hypothermia. And uh, the city was in place. The city did a terrific job. Um, we, uh, Joe Pfeiffer grew up down in Breezy Point. He was a member of the Rockway Point Fire Department. He became a uh, two-star chief with the FDNY. And he upgraded it to a six-alarm fire. And... Uh, Despite the water, they were able to get trucks uh, over the bridge, and um, I think they had uh, the water damaged a lot of their trucks, but they were able to come in in force, and uh, they they were truly uh, a huge asset, and we deeply appreciated the, their arrival. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're running out of time, but let me ask you, where do we get this book? Well, it, the title again, you know, let's repeat the title. Okay, the title is what it was. It's a uh, flood, fire, and a superstorm. And uh, you can get it. Uh, it's in the final editing stages right now, and we hope to be in publication in July. And uh, I'm going through a, uh, a publishing company that, oh, okay. So, so the, uh, you can get it through uh, Amazon.com. I believe that uh, they're going to have a website for me. Uh it's Outskirts Press. It's an independent uh, self-publishing agency, and uh, they've been really great about it. And I hope the story does get out because it's not just about Breezy Point. It, it's really a, a universal story that's global because hurricanes are global, fires are global. And also it's written kind of as a handbook for communities to prepare themselves to uh, learn what to expect and experience in advance of having the actual storm. Marty, listen, thank you for stopping by today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here, and uh, thank you for the time. God bless. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. 
So St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Again, that was to say that was an interesting story is, a, is an understatement. And, you know, it's nice to hear somebody once in a while relate to faith and, you know, God and the Holy Mother and so forth like the, in their story. So th- thank you very much, Marty, for, for bringing that story to us. I mean, to New Yorkers, do y'all remember Sandy? Do you remember where you were? I mean, we a bunch of stories, but nothing like that. Nothing like that. In the meanwhile, getting back to our business, uh, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, Michael, where do they email us a question? If you want to email us a question, you can go to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. AskMikeConnors at gmail.com. Now, we just had a series of seminars a couple of weeks ago. Uh, You know, in our, let's say, post-COVID world right now, we're not doing as many seminars as we used to do, but we are planning to do a seminar or a set of seminars in in October before Halloween. So, you know, keep in touch. We're going to be trying to do the seminars. We're going to go citywide. We're going to go Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Manhattan. So we're going to be doing seminars near you, if, except if you live in the Bronx, but we'll do seminars near you. You can you come know, down to Manhattan. Right. And you can come to Queens. The Whitestone Bridge oh, gets you right right, right right into the Bayside area. And if and if you have a, a not-for-profit like a church or a senior citizen center or something like that, and you want us to do a seminar there, we're more than happy to do it. Now, we'd, I, I would personally like to have at least a month's notice, maybe a little bit more than that, so I can rearrange the schedule to accommodate your group. But if you have a not-for-profit, you have a senior citizens group, you have a religious group, a church, synagogue, we're more than happy to do you know, a seminar for your group. Um, like I said, I'd, I'd like to have four or five weeks' notice so I can rearrange the schedule and give you adequate time to get it. In the meanwhile, Michael, if they want to check, and it's slightly out of date, but if you want to check YouTube, where can you get the seminar on YouTube? Yeah, just go to, you know, YouTube.com, and then you just, all you have to do is type in Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar, and you're going to find, you'll see Dad right there, it'll be a long video, and it's going to cover what you're interested in. All right, and again, Michael, I think it's worth a shot because, uh, I, you know, the number of email questions we get, we should... You know, let's push that a little bit. So where do you email a question if you have a question for us? That's to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Once again, Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Okay. Now, next week, we're going to be talking about history again. And we're going to be talking about one of the most interesting figures in my mind in American history, the Revolutionary War, uh, Daniel Morgan. 
And Daniel Morgan was, you know, a true American hero. And he was an important figure at the Battle of Saratoga. His riflemen helped turn the tide at the Battle of Saratoga. And he delivered one of the more convincing or more decisive victories in the South at, at Cowpens. And, and I had a relative fighting for the Patriots at Cowpens. All right. So tune in next week. We're going to be talking to Al Zambone about Daniel Morgan. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.